Let us open our Bibles together to Romans chapter 3. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. We thank Thee, O Lord of heaven, for Thy precious Word, and we thank Thee for this third chapter of Romans. Let me read to you verses 9 through 20. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Amen and amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for these words of truth and righteousness. Let us take a reasonable amount of time and go as far as we can. It is our goal to learn the epistle to the Romans. So I give you my goals. It is our goal to see Paul's order of doctrinal instruction, starting with total depravity. It is our goal to find ourselves under this indictment so that we will know there is no hope of any synergistic plan of salvation. Do not be overwhelmed by such a simple word. Synergy is the cooperative efforts by several parts to accomplish an end. Synergistic salvation is when men cooperate with God in order to be saved. We deny. We hold to a monergistic plan of salvation, which is God alone must save. This chapter and these verses here will teach us that. We want to learn that. We want to appreciate the Savior we have 
by ending up in verse 20, totally hopeless. I'm sorry if a minister of the gospel that is full of hope must spend a few Sundays taking away all your hope. But by taking away all your hope, you'll love the Lord Jesus Christ more. And we will not fail to mention that hope that we ought to have. For instance, before we even get started, as we look at the words, there is none righteous, no, not one, I cannot help but think of some verses, one of which was just prayed to you. But he hath made him, that is, God hath made Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Amen. Unbelievable. Yeah. That is Second Corinthians 5.21. Unbelievable. What righteousness? Human righteousness? Our righteousness? Righteousness of the law? No, the righteousness of God Amen. through Jesus Christ. Let me remind you, but of Him, that is of God, speaking of our calling and our election, and our, cho- our having been chosen by God, but of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Amen. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. When I read about our Lord Jesus Christ, I read these words about His kingdom. Unto the Son, God saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Praise be to God. We are made righteous with the righteousness of God, secured by the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are full of hope because we are believers sitting in the pews in the church of Rome. But as we look around the gathered assembly in the Roman congregation, we know that there are some Jews there that have been tempted and seduced and to some degree bewitched, and we have heard about it throughout the Roman Empire, that there are false teachers come out of Jerusalem teaching that salvation needs to include some of the works of the law, circumcision, and other Jewish factors in order for someone to be saved. So we understand that. And that is what we want to keep in mind as we study this passage of Scripture. The order is very important. If you dive into Romans chapter 3 at verse 21 and begin reading, you will think that you have an Arminian that is writing Romans chapters 3 and 4. That's because you have not studied chapters 1, 2, and 3 before verse 21. If you study those in the light of the rest of the New Testament, you know that there was a serious heresy being taught in the early churches. And it was being taught by the Jews out of Jerusalem that you had to add the works of Moses. I know that I'm saying it for the second time. I can't teach you the book of Romans unless you get that down pat. There is no conflict between Romans 3 and 4 and James chapter 2. There is no conflict between Romans 3 and 4 and 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter and James are comparing work faith without works. James would say, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Peter would say, add to your faith. And he lists seven things that ought to be added to your faith, because without adding those things, you have no assurance of eternal life. But Paul is comparing faith 
laying hold of the righteousness provided by Jesus Christ by a free and gracious sacrifice by God's mercy in distinction to the works of the law of Jews who thought they were going to be saved by the law. So Paul does not even mention good works backing up faith in these early chapters. We want to get hold of that. The faith that is going to be described is set in distinction to the law of Moses. When it says faith without works, and Paul would say, if you've got works involved, then it's not really faith, because works involve debt, and faith doesn't have any debt. He is not talking the same line of argument that James and Peter are. Enough on that. We'll come to that in its place. I want you to understand what we're doing here, what the Apostle is doing here, and what he's given us in this section, verses 9 through 20. This concludes his first argument. His first argument began at verse 18 of chapter 1, when he said, For the wrath of God is revealed. And it was revealed by his gospel. There is nothing in nature or in conscience that tells us about the great day of judgment. The great day of judgment is something revealed by revelation from God's Word. It's what the book of Ecclesiastes ends with. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. It starts there. Between 1.18 and 3.20, the Apostle Paul is going to chop down Gentiles and Jews alike in that order so that there is no ground left to stand on to add your ability or your works to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. There is no basis for a legal standing before God and to be righteous before God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no righteousness on the part of man. There is no goodness inherent in mankind. Salvation must be entirely by God's grace. I want you to understand that. It's so important for us to understand what these three chapters are about. Think about the book of Romans. It's got 16 chapters. The back five, the back five chapters are practical application of righteousness of how we're supposed to live, beginning at 12.1 and running all the way through the end of 16. So now we're down to an 11 chapter book. Three of those chapters, 9 through 11, are dealing with God, are, are describing God's dealings between Jews and Gentiles. So that brings us down to an eight chapter book. Out of that eight chapter book, the first three Define total depravity, our sinfulness, by several different methods so that we are left hopeless before Almighty God. As we read in verse 20, that every mouth may be stopped. No one can claim anything to help themselves before a holy God. And that all the world may become guilty before God, especially those stubborn, arrogant, proud Jews who trusted in their Jewishness, their Abrahamic heritage, the law, the covenants, circumcision, and temple worship, and so forth. So that's what Paul's doing. And he, oh, did he do a wonderful job. Do you, do, you, do you have your mental hands around Romans 1, 2, and 3? Starting at verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That's the Gentiles who were shown the truth of God by the creation. And so we run the Gentiles down through verse 24, Romans 1, 18 through 28. Romans 1, 18 through 28. 28 would say, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, 
God gave them over to a reprobate mind. What knowledge do they not want to retain? Creation knowledge. So that they are without excuse. 120. And so God judges them severely for worshiping the creature rather than the creator. That's 1, 18 through 28. God judges the Gentiles by their rejection of creation knowledge. Then verses 29 through 32, God judges the Gentiles by a list of 23 crimes, which we found ourselves on quite familiar territory as we read those 23 sins. And it says about the Gentiles, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. They do those 23 crimes, and they choose their friends from those that do the 23 crimes. They choose their entertainment from those that do the 23 crimes. Gentiles condemned, chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, by two arguments. Creation, conscience. Rejection of a creator, 23 crimes. Are you with me? Yes. Do you have the, Do you understand Romans 1? Could you sit down with someone and explain it to them? That's the goal. At least that's what I read in Hebrews chapter 5, where Paul said, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. Are you, are you, do, you have, do you have your mental hands around this? Okay, we've got the Gentiles condemned. They're without excuse. Chapter 2 begins right off with the Jews. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For the Jews thought that they were superior to those wicked, depraved Sodomites of chapter 1. And yet Paul says, you'd commit the same sins in that list of 23 crimes, and yet you think that you can judge those Gentiles? And so Paul takes apart the Jews in the first five verses of chapter 2 on the basis of their hypocrisy and on the basis of their extra privilege or despise Are you with me? I can't go back and preach it. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering? Which classification had had the greatest measure of riches, of goodness, and forbearance and longsuffering? It was the Jews. So for their hypocrisy, Paul said, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. He said, I don't care what you're thinking about yourself. I don't care how hard you judge the Gentiles. We are sure that God's judgment is going to come after you Jews as well. Or or are you despising his goodness, not knowing that his goodness was designed to bring you to repentance, not to confirm that you're on your way to heaven just because you're a Jew? Are you with me? That's two, one through five. Six through thirteen. He condemned the Jews without an exception by their own law, because they thought that it was the reading of the law that would save them, because they were part of the nation that had been entrusted with the care of the physical documents, meaning the scrolls that were in their synagogues and in their temple, they thought they were going to go to heaven because they had the Bible. But the Apostle Paul points out in verses 6 through 13, God is going to render to every man according to his deeds, not according to what he heard, for not the hearers of the law shall be just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. And so he chops the Jews down again. Then he has a couple of verses for the Gentiles, who at that point might have raised their hand and said, well, we never had the law of God, so we can't be held accountable for not having the law of God. 
And in a couple of verses, the Apostle Paul says, God put his law inside you so that you've been accusing and excusing one another for these list of 23 crimes for a long time. You're guilty too. And then he says, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel, verse 16. Jews and Gentiles will be judged. But he's not done with the Jews yet. Because that was the greatest problem. Understand that about the New Testament. They hadn't met an Arminian. Unless you want to say James had met one in James chapter 2, when he describes that faith without works is dead, and that's what Arminians thrive on. Remember the seriousness and the extent of the heresy of Judaism, Moses-keeping, Moses' law, circumcision, being added to the finished work of Christ throughout the New Testament. From Romans to Hebrews, over and over we have to face this enemy. That is why there was the council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And if you will keep that in mind, much of the New Testament takes on an easier solution. So Paul has to go after the Jews further. So in verse 17, Behold, thou art called a Jew. He identifies that singular, personal pronoun that he's been using from the first verse. Thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. So he takes apart the Jews this way. In verses 17 through 24, he takes them apart for being so vociferous and vocal in teaching others the law of God, and thinking that they were a guide of the blind and a light of them which are in darkness but not keeping it themselves. Thou that preachest, a man should not steal. Dost thou steal? Thou that sayest, a man should not commit adultery. Dost thou commit adultery? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? He showed them their hypocrisy that while they were so loud in condemning others by not keeping the law, they themselves were not keeping it. And he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. That's verse 24. So that's his argument from 17 through 24. You're hypocrites because you are so loud about the law. You know its terms, but you don't keep them. Do you think that because you're preaching it, you can break it and not dishonor God? Verse 23. Is, is that the height of arrogance? It was common. When John the Baptist was preaching in Matthew chapter 3, Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The prophecies of Daniel are about to be fulfilled. Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Pharisees showed up and he said, Don't you say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. Because that is not going to do you any good. I need you to understand how serious this heresy was in the New Testament. And brethren, we have lost brothers. In this church to this same heresy, even though it's 2,000 years late, and God put His divine stamp of approval upon the Gentile kingdom by eliminating the Jewish kingdom from the earth. We still lost. How many more of you are going to go running after something like that? Of course, the Old Testament says we ought to keep the Sabbath day about a thousand times. Of course it does. It says 2,000 times that we ought to, we ought to offer a bullock upon an altar. But we don't do either of them. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of both. Praise His glorious name. We're going to have our blood in just a little while. And it's going to be a cup of wine. Remembering a blood that was spilt 2,000 years ago for us. He gets to verse 25 and he brings in circumcision. You Jews, if, if any of you that are still left standing, if you're still left standing in the arguments of your mind that you're not guilty before God just like a Gentile, and you're appealing to your circumcision, you've missed the whole point. 
If you're circumcised and you don't keep the law, it's as good as being uncircumcised. And if an uncircumcised Gentile keeps the law, it's as good as being circumcised. Because the real circumcision is that on the inside, not the outside. And you guys aren't circumcised on the inside, so you're uncircumcised. That's the the last five verses of Romans 2. Now, that's pretty thorough. For those of you that want thorough theology, Romans 1 and 2. And I hope you have your mental hands around it. Say it's pretty, you know, it's pretty simple. It does flow. It's got a purpose. And you're right. Gentiles first, then Jews. They're done. It's over. They're condemned. Verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3, four objections that a Jew could raise. What advantage then hath the Jew? Verse 1 of chapter 3. Or what profit is there of circumcision? Paul would say, much every way. There is an advantage to being a Jew in every way conceivable. Hold on. That's what he said. Can you read it? Romans 3, 2. Much. Now that's a lot. By any measure. Much every way. Hold on. Chiefly because that under them were committed the oracles of God. They had the Scriptures. To have God's Word, to have the Bible throughout the Old Testament while the other nations did not have it, you had a distinct advantage. You had better dietary laws. You had better sanitary laws. You had a better political system. You had a better economic system. You had God with you by day and by night. He was with you in battle. He was with you in store. He blessed you in every single... Yes, yes, yes! There was an advantage to being a Jew. The first two words of Romans 3.9 take us back to that proposed question in verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Paul chases three other skeptical objections in verses 3 through 8 and then leaves them damned that would even think such a ridiculous thing. There is nothing more to be said after verse 8. Do you understand that? He did not have to say anything except to ask a rhetorical question well, why don't you just take it to its logical conclusion that we ought to preach evil that good may come? See, there's nothing more to be said there. There's nothing more to be said after verse 6, which is answering the objection of verse 5. For then how shall God judge the world? The Jews knew that God had to judge the world. And Paul said, well, if your point is true, then how in the world will God be able to judge the world? He just cut them off. Are you with me? Amen. I want you to understand this. And if young men in here, you better be listening with steel trap minds. Right. Someday you're going to be teaching this to your wife, your children, or this church. That is why I'm taking the time to do what I'm doing right now. Listen. Grasp it. Hold it. Understand it. Ask me questions about it later. It flows very simply. Because God has given us light on it. These are not just words and sound of words. It's the sense of the words of condemning all men. What then? 3.9. 3.9. What then? What advantage then? If, if there is much advantage in every way to being a Jew, Paul, what then? Are we better than they? I hope, I, I want you to, you say, how do you know he's going back to verse 1? Simple. By what the rest of the verse says and by what verse 19 says. He isn't going back to verse 8. There isn't anything in verse 8 to go back to. Verse 8 is already settled. It's an objection from verse 7. Settled and done. Verse 6 is the settlement of the objection of verse 5. Settled and done. Verse 4 is the objection of verse 3. Settled and done. What hasn't fully been explained since Paul said in verse 2, much every way. 
there is serious advantages to being a Jew by any measure. Except one measure. <laughs> That's what you got to understand as you go into verse 9. What then? What can we take out of verses 1 and 2? The question was, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? The answer from Paul, much every way. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Well, then after verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, blowing out three more skeptical objections, we're back to that original point, the point that was a problem with every Jew, that they were superior to Gentiles. What then? Are we better than they? Because you said much every way, Paul, because you said chiefly because we have the Scriptures, are we better than the Gentiles? The they is Gentiles. The third person. We. Paul was a Jew. Paul included himself with these Jews objecting. What then? Are we better than they? What is his answer? No. In no wise. Do you see the contradiction? Much, every way. 3, 2. No, in no wise. 3, 9. You say, what in the world is the Bible trying to say? What are we supposed to do? Or what am I supposed to do for you most of the time? Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, because I see shame staring at me right now from verses 2 and 9. Rightly dividing the word of truth. There's no shame here if we rightly divide the word of truth. By every practical measure of being a Jew, there was a serious advantage in 3.2. As far as a legal standing in God's righteousness before the tribunal of God, there was no difference whatsoever between Jew and Gentile. No, in no wise can a Jew have any more standing before God in the righteousness of God than a Gentile can have. Yes, as far as a nation, you grew up with a blessed nation. You were given the vineyards, the wells, the houses, and the furniture of the homes in Canaan. You had the best. And I've already gone through that list in other sermons, and I've already gone through it this time, and I won't repeat myself. There were lots of advantages. This is what Romans 3.9 is introducing us to. What then? Are we better than they? This is not those damned in verse 8. This is back to the Jewish-Gentile issue of verses 1 and 2. What? How do we know that? By reading the verse. No, in no wise, for we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. So you know exactly what he's going after. Paul must get the Jews down on the same playing field with the Gentiles, where the Jews do not think that they have one inch of advantage in the sight of God. And he's going to do it. Are you with? The, the, listen, I am going slow because I want you to understand this. If you think that I'm not covering enough ground, then go ahead and consult among yourselves and find out what other two evenings of the week that you want to get together, and I will preach from other places. It is not because I don't want to cover ground. I don't want to leave the book of Romans because it may be the last time I ever get to preach this book in its entirety to you, and I want you to know it. And I'm not angry about it. I'm just committed to it. Amen. It's, too, it's too plain. It's right. too simple. And I want to pack it into your minds so that you can go right through these chapters and explain how these verses fit together. 3.9. What then? 
Let's go back to our, our original problem of verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Are we better than they, those Gentiles? Are we Jews better than those Gentiles because we have all the blessings, the practical blessings described in 3, 1, and 2? No. In no wise. Paul's very clear negative answer is definite and it is definitive. No. In no wise. You Jews, stop thinking you're better than the Gentiles. No. In no wise. Do you have any better legal standing before Almighty God? No. In no wise do you have any more righteousness than a Gentile has when under the examination of a holy and righteous God. No. In no wise. Do you know what Paul had to fight his entire life against these enemies? Do you understand that? Have you read the book of Galatians, the entire book? Who hath bewitched you that you would depart from the truth? Some have fallen from grace, thinking that circumcision and the law saved. Why do we have the 13 chapter book called Hebrews? Why was there the council at Jerusalem? Paul is building a case that is powerful. And we're we're at the conclusion of it. But there's still this little voice. You would think, after the 29 verses of chapter 2 and the 8 verses opening chapter 3, that the Jews would have said, Uncle! Enough! No mas! But they said, What then? Are we better than they? And so that's why you get the answer you do, and that's why the emphasis for me on the answer. No! In no wise. Now what's Paul basing that strong answer on? No. In no wise. What's he basing that on? He's already proved the point. For we have before proved. What does he mean before? When I was in Rome the last time on a visit? When I wrote my other epistle? This is 2nd Romans? Chapters 1 and 2. We have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. Now, brethren, what order did Paul prove that they were all under sin in Romans 1 and 2? Who did he deal with first? Gentiles. But what, is he, what order does he use here? Jews first. Oh, you've, you've got to appreciate all the little nuances in this epistle. We have before proved both Jews and Gentiles because he's got to get those Jews down to where they already know the Gentiles belong. We have before proved chapters 1 and 2 through verse 29. We've proven it. I've answered a few objections in verse 8, but it's chapter 1, 18 through 229 that we have before proved. And brethren, when we use the Bible, we want to be able to prove our points. What is the difference here? The difference is that righteousness before God is the thought. It's the theme. It's the point. The Jews have no advantage over the Gentiles in the righteousness of God. They have no advantage in the matter of justification before God. Of being able to stand before God guiltless in His presence. They have no advantage. No in no wise. We are not better than the Gentiles by this measure. There are many advantages that we have had. Practical in nature. But none legal pertaining to salvation, justification, and righteousness. The repetition should be sufficient. We have before proved Jews and Gentiles, and I have gone through that proving process with you already. Because I want you to see the beauty of it from 118 to 229, 
and its different arguments as Paul takes down the Gentiles first and then the Jews. He had proven the point sufficiently. But they're asking again because it was part of their national tendency. It was part of their arrogance in their religion. And I want to say this. You can hardly fault them. If we had been Jews, we would probably have argued as vociferously for that religion as they did. Because you knew it was God's temple. You knew it was God's priesthood. You knew it was God's word. You knew that you had been singled out from all the nations on the earth to be dealt with by God in a very special manner. You knew that. You knew that Moses was of your nation. That Abraham was the father of your nation. That Messiah was going to come of your nation. You just knew all these things. And to have these fishermen come along and say, Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah that you've been looking for for a thousand years and you crucified him was too much to bear. That a man who was killed by the Romans and buried, remember they didn't believe in the resurrection if you were a true Jew, just too much for them. And so whenever one would be converted and believe that Jesus had been what was the Messiah of God, and did rise from the dead, they would want to add some of the works of Moses, just they could not believe that the whole thing had been scrapped. Because, brethren, the temple was still standing. Have you ever read, you know, I can't, I can't take, one of these days maybe, one of these days maybe, I will have an electronic pad up here in the pulpit, and I will hit a link right now and show you the best drawings of the temple of Herod, where the worship of God took place in Jerusalem. In 55 A.D. when this epistle was written, I guess at those numbers. It was very impressive. Overwhelming. Do you remember what the disciples did with Jesus? Remember, they were over 30 years of age. They had been to the temple a few, few times maybe. In Matthew 24, did the disciples take Jesus on another tour? Saying, Master, look at this thing. You had left that church to go be persecuted and followers of Jesus of Nazareth who had died at the hands of the Roman emperor. David never did anything like that. They just couldn't believe it that the whole thing had been scrapped. For 40 years, the two covenants ran side by side. From John to the destruction of Jerusalem, the new covenant and the old covenant ran side by side. And then in 70 AD, the whole thing was thrown away because it was trash. You say that's not a very nice word to describe the Old Testament ceremonial worship. It's not. Paul said in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13, Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. How would you put that into the vernacular? Throw out the trash. That which decayeth, that spoiled food in the refrigerator, that which decayeth and waxeth old, oh, that's old milk, don't give me that stuff. Ever done that before? It's ready to vanish away. And it happened in 70 A.D., but until then the Apostle Paul had his hands full. And by the inspiration of God, he gave us these chapters to put the Jews right where they belong. Condemned beside the Gentiles. That they are all under sin. Every Jew, every Gentile is under sin. This is, not, this is the last part of verse 9. This is not describing their vital nature of depravity. This is describing the burden of guilt that is upon each of them for their sins. They're under the burden of sin. They're under the guilt of sin. They're under the punishment of sin. There's going to be none able to stand before God, whether Jew or Gentile. And I've already proven the point. Is it ever wise to beat a dead horse? 
Now, when Paul does it, we don't believe the horse was fully dead. And if you read the first half of verse 9, the horse wasn't fully dead, was it? Because the little voice was coming up, what then? Are we better than they? So the horse wasn't dead. It was still twitching. Give me... Never mind, let's not get... Oh no, don't call... De- oh, Peter's going to be after us. Humane society's going to be after us. Talking about beating dead horses. I, lo- I love this so much. <laughs> Paul has one ace in his back pocket. Do you know what that ace is? Their scriptures. He has saved the best for last. He has bludgeoned the Gentiles and then the Jews. And they, oh, look at what it says about them. Verse 17. Behold, 217. Behold, thou art called a Jew and restest. Restest. Restest in the law. You have found your safe harbor in the law of God. Because it's read to you every Sabbath day and you wear it in that decorated box on your forehead and you've got it strapped on your arms. You rest in the law and make your boast of God. Verse 23, Thou that makest thy boast of the law. Out comes the ace. Forgive my metaphor. How about out comes the derringer? Or out comes the magnum. I don't care what metaphor you use. Paul has saved the best to last. And he is now going to appeal to their scriptures as it is written. I have proven this for two chapters long. And you still have the gall to say, what then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, as it is written. Now, instead of pulling forward the scriptures like, thou shalt not commit adultery, verse 22, or stealing, verse 21, instead of bringing out the law that way, look at these commandments that you haven't kept. He's going to bring out the law of God in its definitive description of human depravity and apply it particularly to the Jews. Because of verse 19, now we know that what things soever the law saith, what things? The sick, are you with me? This is so, this is sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, the six quotations that I'm going to make in verses 10 down through 18, saith to them that are under the law. You law lovers, you that have your lullaby every night because you rest in the law of God, I'm going to quote your own scriptures to you and see what they have to say about the character of Jews and all men. He's getting both. But remember his point. I've got to get the Jews down where the Gentiles are. The Jews already would have shouted amen in chapter 1 that God was going to judge the Gentiles. But Paul's got to get the Jews down there. It is not enough for me to give you sound bites. I want to give you the sense of these verses. The sense is everything. And this is the sense. As it is written. Now he hasn't done this yet. He pulls it. He pulls out all stops. You like hearing the law of God? You rest in the law of God, even though you're hypocrites, because while you're preaching, the Gentiles shouldn't be doing such things. You're doing them yourselves. 
But now I want to pull out the law of God and what it has to say about you Jews. And he quotes six passages of Scripture from the Old Testament. And those six passages of Scripture from the Old Testament are a section here that we must understand. You cannot go forward in the book of Romans and understand without getting these down pat. Because once these are down pat, you know that the faith mentioned in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4 cannot originate in man. Because there is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They are all gone out of the way. There is no room for faith originating in man. For our benefit, but this is for the Jewish benefit, as it is written. Not content with the condemnation that he had clearly proven in two chapters, which he mentions in verse 9, he now produces their scriptures to condemn them. He had used the scriptures in general as a law not kept by the Jews. They heard it. Remember he said, it's not the hearers of the law that are justified, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Verse 13 of chapter 2. He had used the scriptures to describe their character and them sinning against it there in verses 17 through 24. But now he's going to quote from the Word of God. This is the way that preaching ought to be done. We build up our... Now, Paul was inspired. Paul got to preach for a number of verses without saying as it is written because he was an inspired apostle. So we would have to be quoting Paul to get started. But the way to preach is to say, as it is written. And do you know where Paul would go when he was preaching, when he was on one of his evangelistic trips? He would go to the synagogues where men already believed the Bible. Jews and Gentiles. They were called proselytes if you were a Gentile and you were worshiping in a synagogue in some city in Turkey or Greece where Paul preached. But he would go in there and find these men that believed the Bible and he would turn the Scriptures open to them. He would open and allege, like an attorney in court, Acts chapter 17, opening statements and alleging with proof from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. That's how they preached, because you had men who believed the Bible. Now, Paul has held this best part for last with Jews that believed the Bible. In fact, they rested in the law. They made their boast of the law. Oh, but now he's going to turn, he's going to turn the 39 magnum on them. See, we've got a 66. You understand. We've got both testaments. Paul had the old, but he's going to turn the 39 magnum on these poor Jews. And it's in these words, as it is written. Verse 9 is not the end of a sentence. Verse 10 is explaining verse 9 and going, I'm going to add to it. I've already proven my point. I have before proved my point. But you want to keep asking that question? Are the Jews better than the Gentiles? I have before proved the point that they are all under sin. Jews and Gentiles, without exception, are under sin. As it is written, he pulls the most powerful point he could. He's going to use the Scriptures. There is none righteous. No, not one. My dear brethren, the first quotation is verses 10 through 12. 10 through 12. It's from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 that we read earlier this morning. Verse 13 is from Psalm 5-9. Verse 13c is from Psalm 140 and verse 3. Verse 14 is from Psalm 10:7. Verse 15 is from Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. That's verses 15 and 16 are from Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. And verse 18 here in Romans chapter 3 is from Psalm 36, verse 1. Six quotations. He just piles out one after another as it is written. This is how Paul preached. This is not the only place he does this. 
I could, for pure entertainment, you could go to places like Romans 15 or Hebrews chapter 1 where Paul says, and again, and again, and again, and again, meaning I'm quoting from a different place in the Old Testament, and again, I want to make another quotation. Here he doesn't say that. He just strings them together and hammers them with six shots from six passages of the Old Testament. No, in no wise are we Jews better than they Gentiles. For we have before proved the point that they are all under sin, but let's hear what the Scriptures have to say about the matter. And remember verse 19. Now we know that what things over the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law. (laughs) It is primarily directed to the Jews. Paul's point here is not to get Gentiles down further. His point here is to get Jews down to Gentiles so that he can get the whole world condemned before God that every mouth may be stopped. But what mouth was still running? Are you with... Are you, are, am I tying these things together in your head? Does verse, does verse 19 say that we've got to get a mouth stopped? What mouth is still running? Are we better than they? <laughs> I love the Word of God. Amen. I've told you that the Jews sitting in that assembly at Rome when this was read, if there were any that were leaning toward Jewish legalism, they'd have been shouting Amen as Paul tore apart Gentiles and Sodomites. Then chapter 2 would have started to get a little uncomfortable. And they'd have been hoping that the Gentiles around them were thinking that the singular personal pronoun was referring to some self-righteous Gentile. Oh, then that verse 17. Boom! Behold, thou art called a Jew. Oh! He's after us. He makes fun of circumcision. And then he gets to this. He's going to turn the Scriptures on them as it is written in your Scriptures that you rest in and that you make your boast of. There is none righteous. No, not one. The most powerful way to ever reason is with with Scripture. Isaiah would write in a verse that I've quoted to you 103 times. Isaiah 8.20 To the law and to the prophets. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Their strongest argument is always to take things back to Scripture. Don't try to argue logically or reasonably unless you're reduced to that. Go with Scripture. Jesus would say when confronted by the devil three times for each of the three temptations the devil brought his way, it is written. It is written. It is written. And what do we have here? As it is written. That is the way we ought to preach. Take the Word of God, apply its sense, but bring the Word of God to bear. Because the Word of Jonathan Crosby or the Word of any other man is irrelevant and worthless compared to the words of the living God. This is all that matters right here between the covers of your Bible. This This is the only truth we have. This is all I've got to offer. This is what ministers are supposed to preach. Preach the Word. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. Brethren, do you know what is written in the Bible? I'm closing right now for, till, for us to have our break. Do you know what's written in the Bible? When you are discussing or debating the truth with someone, do you know where it is in the Bible? Paul could say, as it is written. Now, I know he was inspired, but Paul probably also knew these passages by heart. Do you know where to go? You don't have to memorize them all as long as you're carrying a palm pilot or something or you've got a concordance with you. 
you know, I've got this handy-dandy concordance that I've loved for so many years. You could drop this thing out of an airplane. It's just so built, but it's so useful to find as it is written. Because we don't want to say, I think it says somewhere in the Old Testament. What? We want to give the certain words of truth to those that ask us. That's what Proverbs 22 says. 1 Peter 3.15 says we want to give a reason of the hope that is within us. A reason. And you know what the only reason is that matters? God's Word, as it is written. So as we look at this and realize that Paul has built his case, built his case, built his case, so that he could say, the issue is settled. I have proven the point. Verse 9. Then he unloads the most powerful point. As it is written. Do you know what is written? Do you know what the Bible teaches? Do you read it every day? Do you review sermons? Do you consider these things? Do you meditate upon them? Do you put them into practice? Do you exercise your senses to discern good and evil that Hebrews 5 tells you to do? Do you know where it's written? Do you know what the sense is of the writing? Young men, I'm speaking to you if you hadn't noticed. Do you know what is written, where it's written, and what the sense is of what is written? Learn it with me. I'll help you. The older generation of this church is departing. Who will stand and maintain the truth of God's Word? The sense of Romans 3, 9, in light of all that is there. We are concluding Paul's initial argument. The extra time spent on this verse, I hope, is worth it, in that you see the whole argument from 118 to 320 with a, with a high degree of clarity. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.